You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. Hear ye, hear ye. It's an old school way of getting someone's attention. The town crier standing on a box in the center of the cobblestone square, scroll in hand, ready to make some great announcement. Hear ye, hear ye, time to listen up. We have our own modern versions of the hear ye town crier in our on-demand world. It's the amber alert that goes off abruptly on your phone, telling you to keep your eyes peeled for something the public can assist in. Or the pleasant chime in the department store over the PA, letting you know there's a lost child, or there's a cleanup on aisle five, or there's a blue light special in menswear. Or the police siren coming from down the avenue, informing you of the need to pull over and make way for something urgent. Or the tornado sirens here in Oklahoma, telling you severe weather is heading your way and you better duck for cover. We have found ways to make public announcements beyond the old-fashioned hear ye, hear ye that once we heard before technology that made the crown tire, uh, cr- town crier job position obsolete. And in this section of the book of Mark, Jesus is teaching in parables. And he started out in Mark 4, verse 3 by saying, listen, his way of saying, hear ye, hear ye. Some English versions say hearken. The Greek is akuo. It means to attend to, to consider what is said or has been said, to understand, to perceive the sense of what is said. A thing comes to one's ears to find out, to learn, to give ear to a teaching or a teacher, and to comprehend. And Jesus reiterates this in the chapter. A lot of it is how we hear and what we hear when it comes to God's truth and how we respond. In fact, the word here in English, akuo in Greek, is used 13 times in this one chapter, Mark chapter 4. Let's count that out. Here, 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 listen. It's 13 times in the chapter. You get the point? Hear ye, hear ye. Our God speaks, and we be wise to listen. The psalmist was writing about the idols of the nations and how foolish it was to turn to these false gods. Twice the psalmist wrote what he observed, saying, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Carved mouths, which can't utter a sound. And then he goes on and says, They have ears, but they do not hear. They can't hear us either, like our God can. He also says, Nor do they mutter through their throat. They can't communicate to us like the one true God can. And then the psalmist draws his conclusion, Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. How quickly we try to listen to idols, don't we? Even though they really say nothing at all. The advice of the world, the reasoning of this age, those mute messages being piped into us through every form of media, on the computer screen, through our phones, through our earbuds, so many messages with so little to say in the end. But our God speaks, and we would be wise to hear. Hear ye, hear ye, it is time to listen as we continue in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. So Jesus has just explained the parable of the sower. After the disciples asked him about it in private, they apparently didn't get the full meaning when they have heard it live when Jesus proclaimed it to the crowds. Listen, the seed is the word of God, he said. And while the seed always has the potential to be fruitful, the state of the soil determines the fate of that seed. Some have hardened hearts and the seed does not penetrate like a stony path never taking root. The birds, the enemy, coming and robbing it away before it can accomplish anything. Some spring up quickly, showing much zeal and potential, but don't take root, at least not very deeply, rocks in the soil. And when hardship and opposition come because of the word, they wither away. Some are alive and well, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things, 
They are thorns, weeds, choking out the fruit that could and should be there. But some, Jesus said, are good soil and bear fruit, thirty, sixty, one hundredfold. Hear ye, hear ye, Jesus has made it clear. And in that crowd that day, the good seed of the truth of God would land on a variety of hearts, not all prepared to bear much fruit. We pick up in Mark 4, verses 21 through 23. Also he, Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus' question to them, Do you bring a lamp to be put under a basket or under the bed? Not at all. The lamp is brought into the house to bring light, to illuminate. Now, the lamp he's referring to is not your living room lamp by your couch or your bedside, your bedside lamp on your nightstand or your study lamp positioned over your college dorm room desk for studying. It was the oil lamp. Imagine the Aladdin genie in a lamp, if you will. A reservoir of oil and a wick to light, supplying a continual light. No extension cord or plug you stuff behind the end table to hide from view in this lamp brought in to illuminate once it grows too dim to see. Imagine, glass windows are kind of a modern thing. We like to light. We like to light up our homes with natural light. Ancient homes likely had very little light coming in, even during the day. Maybe a few portals to let in some air, but probably dim much of the time. So the lamp was a necessity. You had to bring it in, and its purpose was to light it up. It makes me think of when I was really young, probably three, four, or five, and we still lived in San Diego, and we used to go camping in the desert. Glamis, Buttercup, Superstition, some of those places we'd go to. And my dad had this Hunter Green Coleman camping lantern. The fuel went into a reservoir in the bottom. Above that, glass covered the area where the filament was. And those filaments, they reminded me of two empty tea bags carefully placed. The fuel would be primed, and he had to pump it up a bit, and once it was lit, the campsite was illuminated pretty well. Out there in the desert, far from any towns and any man-made light, the dark desert night suddenly light again because of the lantern. If we had to do anything that required visual clarity, the lantern was the key. It usually hung from an awning somewhere central to the activities, or placed on a camping table right where the ingredients for s'mores were. All of us gathered round, able to see the ingredients to assemble assemble our campfire treats. We learned not to touch the lantern because it was hot and could burn, and we respected the warning, with the lantern a crucial member of the camping party on each of those outings. How foolish it would have been if my dad had filled the lantern, primed the lantern, lit the lantern, then hid it under the pickup truck, or put it in the cab on the floor, or taken it behind the nearest acacia bush and put it on the far side, or dug a hole and buried it in the sand. No, it was brought out to shine the light so we could see, front and center, please. So Jesus asks, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So I think we can look at this two ways. First, Jesus is declaring that God is making his message known. Nothing to be hidden. The clarity of the gospel being proclaimed. Through the life, the ministry, the death, the burial of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, It is out there for all to see, plain as day, and not hard to see. The prophet Isaiah wrote this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. 
the prophet proclaiming that God has shown his light into the darkness, sending a message of hope right where it was needed, not turning his back and leaving them to grope. Upon those who walked in darkness, on those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, that's really hopeless. Upon them a light has shined. Matthew wrote to the Jews and used a lot of the Old Testament and quoted it to show and to prove to Jews that Jesus was their promised Messiah. And he referred to Isaiah's verse, the one we just read in chapter four of his gospel, the gospel of Matthew. It says, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. And it goes on, Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew said Jesus made this move to Galilee, came to the sea and started preaching the gospel to set the lamp on its lampstand, to bring light into darkness. The psalmist said that God has shown the light of his presence since the start and awareness of his presence, even in the very creation, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The light shining into darkness, even the darkness corner of the earth. Something in our existence know God is, knows that God is there. We had a young woman come to the church in Slovenia. She had lived abroad and gotten saved in Hawaii, in fact, and plugged into a church there. And she moved back to Slovenia after a number of years abroad. She wasn't sure that she was going to find a church since when she left, she was not a believer and didn't know of any churches. And ironically, the church where she was going in the islands was the church where I had gone to growing up. And in fact, the church in, with which I took my first missions trip to Slovenia. So they told her, no worries, there's a Maui boy pastoring in Slovenia, teaching the word, you should feel right at home. And though she lived in another city in the country when she moved back, she made it to church as often as she was able to worship with us, to be in the word with us, to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. And hearing her testimony one time, I remember one small part of it. She was in the islands of Hawaii, working in the garden or something, and a rush of wind came through and blew across her skin. And she stopped and paid notice and for some reason said to herself, God. She hadn't paid much thought to him before, to it before, but a simple breeze, a key part of her journey that led her to seek and find the heart of the gospel. God is shining his light into darkness, even through creation. Stop, pay attention, take a look. He's showing himself everywhere. Paul wrote in Romans 1 that the problem is not that the light is not being brought into the room, but that it is being ignored or rejected, stuffed under the bed to cloud out the light, or attempted to put it out, Paul wrote. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That means they're putting it under the basket, throwing it under the bed, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God and they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. God is faithful to being the light, but history and our own testimonies show that we have rejected it, tried to put it under the bed, but it continues to burn brightly and cannot be ignored.
I think a second way to look at what Jesus is saying about putting it on a lampstand and about nothing being hidden goes back to the Sunday school song that many of you might know. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. God has made it clear, as should we. Paul was in prison in Rome for having shared the gospel. It was an attempt to silence his voice, to keep the gospel at bay. But Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, Pray for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul knew that he ought to speak up, to let that light shine. He also wrote to the Colossians from prison, saying, Pray also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Jesus has given us his light, shining it plainly, and we can proclaim, I have seen the light, and his light in us needs to shine. Not to be hidden or put away or muffled or stifled, it should come to light. And Jesus said there, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The message of the gospel is loud and clear for everyone. And who is our audience to share the gospel with? Anyone with ears. May they hear. Paul to the Romans, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? It's time, brothers and sisters, it's time to shine, to proclaim, hear ye, hear ye, because some there, there are some who will listen. And now Jesus shifts a bit and gives them and us an exhortation, a challenge to be responsible hearers. We can hear sometimes and not listen, can't we? As a man, I think this is especially a guy thing, perhaps. I notice the way my mind processes things. If it gets too full, it's kind of like it just focuses on highlights, but not the details. Like my wife can tell me we need some things and to go to the store. And I'll remember the big parts of the information. Wife asked a favor. Stop at Walmart on the way home. But then I get into the store and the details of the request have gone missing. Like in, in data storage, the files have been compressed and I'm just getting the big things. So I usually ask now for a text of the things that we need, because I need to look at the list so I don't miss anything important, lest I find myself back in the car again to run to the store for something that I missed. So Jesus exhorts them to consider something. Mark 4, verses 24 and 25. Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Take heed, Jesus says. The word in Greek is blepo, to observe, to discover, to understand, to discern, to focus and see the details of it. Look here, Jesus says. What you hear is important. It seems up front that he is talking about measure. I remember ice cream in the freezer as a kid, and we'd get a bowl if we were good, a lot of little spoons to fit into our little mouths, though the bowl never seemed to have enough ice cream in it. But my dad would grab a huge spoon, like a big soup spoon, and dig in directly into the carton, and in just a few bites could make a dent in the ice cream. Sometimes he, he wouldn't even put it in that bowl, and he'd just stand there in front of the freezer, put down some ice cream with his big spoon, then put it right back in. And it seemed so unfair as a kid. He got a big scoop, 
spoon, a big scoop, a big spoon, and could get so much. While our measure, though suited for our pre-bedtime needs, seemed to not get down as much ice cream, these little two teaspoons compared to his big soup spoons. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. You want more, Jesus asked. I'll give you more. This is what was happening in the teaching ministry of Jesus. Some of the crowd and the the religious leaders for sure had a very small appetite, and they were starting to miss more and more. Spiritual cataracts growing over their eyes. They weren't coming with expectation to get much. Their motives otherwise, just to see a flashy miracle or with a religious legalist bone to pick. But here are the disciples, after hours, after hours, (laughs) asking about the parables and the teaching. And Jesus is staying after class to unpack it with them. It seems like the Lord gives us more when he sees that we're hungry for it. And when we have swallowed what he has already given to us. Speaking of ice cream, we have a place we like to go for two scoops every now and then, and they have vegan ice cream, and if you've not had it, don't knock it. One of our favorites is the blueberry cheesecake vegan ice cream, though the German chocolate is pretty good too. But I usually drive after we've picked it up, and Erin is in the passenger seat, and so, like the loving wife that she is, she'll feed me bites as we go. And these are not the big soup spoons that my dad used to have by the refrigerator as he ate from the carton of ice cream. These are like tiny little things, little bites that they want you to take, which are always a little too small, but she does pretty good most of the time. But every now and then, it's like she's force feeding a baby. I barely have time to finish up the previous bite, and she's giving me another spoon pressed to my lips to shove more in. And I'm still working on the last bite, and I don't want to get brain freeze. I prefer if she'd let me enjoy it fully to take care of it completely, then move on to the next. I think the Lord is very attentive to this when it comes to His Word, when it comes to biblical truth. If we are slow to process it, slow to engage with it, slow to swallow it. He doesn't give more. But to those who are eager, zealous, passionate, taking a bite and then applying it and living it and internalizing it readily, mouths wide open, he's there with the next spoonful to serve up. And the growth is exponential. That's what Bible college felt like for me personally. I had wanted to go to Bible college after finishing my degree, feeling like some time at the Lord's feet would be a welcome refreshment. And at the same time, we started the Bible study across the border in Slovenia. So Monday through Friday, spoon after spoon of God's word being served up, then all weekend across the border doing ministry, back on Sunday nights, ready and hungry for more, because I was taking it in and needing and wanting more, taking notes in class because the experienced missionaries who were teaching the classes were sharing insights that I knew I would need the next weekend or that applied to something we had dealt with the previous weekend while out doing ministry. And God was giving more and more. I felt like I grew exponentially. Now, not to judge, but I felt that some others at the school may not have gone away with as much because it was a lot to take in. Too many bites at once, perhaps. But I was hungry and working it out. Like little Oliver, please, sir, can I have some more? The Lord plopping more on my plate as I went through the cafeteria line again. How are we doing with what the Lord has given us? What he gave us last week at church? Or this morning in devotions, how are you doing with it? The thing that he keeps giving you to chew on seems to be serving it up a lot lately. Hear ye, hear ye. Take heed what you hear and live it out. Work it out. Apply it and live it. There's another portion he's waiting to dollop on our plates, but he wants to see what we'll do with what he's already given to us. So Jesus keeps going, and I love the parable that he gives next. Verses 26 through 29. Check this one out. 
And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Kind of parallel to the parable of the sower, this man scatters seed on the ground, and in this case, it sounds like good soil. But farming is not a spectator sport. The farmer sows the seeds, then goes off to work on other things. He might maintain good conditions in that field, irrigation ditches, maybe some fertilizer now and then, and so on. But he's not setting up some chair like the lifeguard stand or the line judge at Wimbledon, watching the field from sowing to reaping during that whole process. That's not how he should spend his time. No, he goes home, goes to bed, goes and works another field the next day, so on and so forth, paints the fence, repairs the barn. And he himself does not know how the seed does what it does. The genetic code. How does it know when the water gets to it to soften its outer kernel and then the proteins start to mingle and react and then a sprout, roots, seedlings, stock, bigger and bigger? He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That's what Jesus said. The farmer, he's off doing other things has no control over this whole process. He's there at the start, sowing, and shows up at the end, reaping. Everything else in between is not dependent on him. Take it back to the original parable that we looked at the last time. The seed is the word of God. We do not know how it works, but we know it does, and it's fruitful. I think this is an encouragement to the disciples and to us, who are called to go and sow the seed, having been told that there will be different soils and different responses, to also remember the power of the seed lies in the seed and not in us. The sower can't make anything happen, but time and the right conditions prove fruitful. We don't know how the word of God impacts us and those around us, but when it is sown, it will bear fruit. It takes faith many times to press on in sharing the word with our kids, with our circles, on the mission field, because we wonder if anything is happening, if it's making any impact. Jesus says here, it is. Go to sleep, get up tomorrow, and be there and be equipped when it's time for the harvest. Paul reflected on his own missions experience when he wrote in Corinth to Corinth in chapter 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. With the nature of Paul's ministry, he was not able to stick around. But God had done a work through the gospel, and Paul had just faithfully sown, Apollo stepping in later for the next phase. How wise we would be to be faithful to sow. We quit when we don't get results right away. We should spend a lifetime of cultivating fruitfulness in the word of God. I like what Psalm 92 says. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. We have an old apricot tree, I think, in the backyard. Been there from way before we, met, we ever moved in. You can tell from the bark and details on the trunk that it has been around for a long time. And it's not very fruitful. It took a few years to even discover it was a fruit tree, an apricot tree. Then one year, we had a lot of rain in the spring, and suddenly in late May and early June, we had some fruit in our backyard that I had not seen before. It's only happened a few times in the 10 years that we've lived in this house, but every now and then, not very regularly, it bears fruit in its old age. Not quite what we see in Psalm 92. 
Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. I wish my apricot tree would take note. Are we fruitful? Are we as fruitful as we once were? The farmer went out to sow and went on his way. But that seed, it did bear fruit, though he did not know how. We don't know how powerful the word of God is, but it sure is fruitful when we make a place for it in our lives. And it will be fruitful in the lives of others as we're faithful to sow it and go about our business and just go and keep going about what God has given us and come back in another season. And you'll see that the word that you sowed in those lives, it's bearing fruit. We look at one more parable in this chapter and then a quick story event. Mark 4, verses 30 through 34. Then Jesus said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches, so that the birds of the air may rest under its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this, this tiny seed sown into the ground, a mustard seed, almost paper thin. Now, some criticize and try to reduce credibility of the Bible, saying that the orchid seed is smaller, but this is a seed that is sown into the ground. An orchid seed is not sown for the purpose of harvesting something of agriculture, but Jesus' listeners would identify with this teeny tiny seed that would be in the fields. Now, something different here. It gets big really big, almost like a tree. Apparently, there are some things to unlock here. A tiny mustard seed grows quickly. It can push deep into the soil with strong roots. It can become a vibrant tree that adds to the vitality of the soil. One website I read said this, Mustard bushes reach an average mature height of between 6 and 20 feet with a 20-foot spread, although exceptional plants can reach 30 feet tall under ideal conditions. They have a spreading, multi-stemmed growth habit with a drooping or weeping branch structure. Mustard bushes come from, an, uh, come from arid climates and have adapted to deal with poor soil, scarce moisture, and extreme heat. They're sensitive to cold. They grow best when planted in full sun and a clay-based soil, but will tolerate a range of soil types and light afternoon shade with minimal damage. Avoid planting mustard bushes near septic systems and cisterns because their penetrating, water-seeking roots will seek out the moisture found in underground systems and cause damage. Man, a small seed, but a hardy plant, or bush, or tree. There are two main ways to look at the parable, and I don't think you will go wrong necessarily with either, since both have biblical principles that can support them. First, this mustard seed is great. This growth is great. It will infiltrate, penetrate, penetrate grow, and thrive. Something small becoming a formidable force, overcoming adversity and less-than-ideal conditions to grow even in a desert. And many see this parable as one of hope of promise, of expectation, that the gospel came from small beginnings. Jesus in Galilee, his 12 off-the-radar disciples, and what started then was a force to be reckoned with. The power of the gospel, the cross, the death, the burial and resurrection, the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost, witnesses going to the ends of the earth, a refuge for all who seek it hardy and persevering in adverse circumstances, including persecution throughout history, an encouragement to sow. Because though it appears small and insignificant, the gospel is a powerful message, and God's kingdom will grow and spread. And to be part of the kingdom is to ultimately be on the winning team. That's one interpretation. 
But there is another interpretation, and partly it comes from the image of the birds in the parable, where Jesus said, But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches, so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Back in the parable of the sower, the birds of the air that come and devour the seed along the path, Jesus says that the birds were Satan, who comes immediately and takes the word away that was sown into their hearts. Just before that, he said in Mark 4, verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? How will then you understand all the parables? Many see this as key to understanding the parables, that the symbolic elements of one will mean the same thing in another, and that the parable of the sower is sort of the key, the decoder, to determining the meaning of many other parables. So that the mustard seed grows large and in charge from a tiny mustard seed, it shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade, taking it to mean the same thing, that the birds resting in its shade equate demonic activity, that the enemy will not leave the kingdom to flourish unnoticed, but will use it to his advantage, infiltrating, nesting, taking up residence, and how we've seen that in the kingdom. The enemy is never far away. Much of what comes under the mainstream umbrella of Christianity is far from what the Lord intended. And corruption, sin, compromise, unbiblical teachings, practices, and philosophies under the guise of the church bring confusion, frustration, and straight-up opposition. And this interpretation could be for the disciples to sort of, hey, the seed of the word of, is great and powerful. The impact and extent are vast, but be sober about it. It won't be all that easy. I think both interpretations can apply and not stray from biblical principles that we find elsewhere in Scripture. But finding meaning in the Word can sometimes take sitting, seeking, searching, something even the disciples themselves did, as we see in verse 34. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. When they were alone, he explained all things. How well we would do to get alone with the Lord to meditate on his Word. Sure, hearing a sermon is great. Listening on the radio or on a podcast is wise. Getting as much teaching of the Word of God sows good seed into our lives, and we will reap and bear good fruit for it. But when we get alone with Him, He explains all things. There's something powerful about meditating on the things that God says in His Word. Quiet times, times to ponder, times to meditate. I was speaking with a friend lately, and we were talking about how we both used to journal, to sit alone with the Lord and write down even just one verse, and watch as the Spirit began to expound and unpack the meaning and application for our lives, jotting down everything. I told this friend that I was at a missions conference a number of years ago, fresh on the mission field, and John Corson was teaching. And he talked about having a pen and notebook ready every time we sit with the Lord, that it communicates that we expect we will hear something important, that we're expecting to hear something so important that we need to write it down. Sort of back to the measure principle we saw earlier. With the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. But how sweet it is to be alone with the Lord and to hear him explain things to us, things we need to hear, that we long to hear, that we wait to hear. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if we are to hear God because he's speaking, how do we do it? What's his YouTube channel? Where do we download the Lord's podcast? How do we hear the voice of God? It's something that many wrestle with. I think it could be narrowed down to four ways. God speaks through the Bible, through prayer, through circumstances, and through the church. God speaks through the Bible. It's amazing how much instruction we find for life, for even our current circumstances in our personal lives that have already been written in Scripture. God speaks through prayer. As we seek Him, the Spirit begins to guide and direct our hearts, a dynamic two-way communication and not just a monologue. 
As you pray, a scripture related to the need you have that you have might come to mind, or you get clarity as you sort through your own thoughts and static in your head. God speaks through circumstances. Sometimes open and closed doors become road signs that show us what God's will is and what it is not. And God speaks through the church, the church being other believers, who have wisdom, insight, experience, and giftings through which the Lord can help guide us. Here's a practical example. Erin recently resigned from her job in education and is beginning a new season serving at a crisis pregnancy center. Not something that we had planned or plotted or that was in our 10-year plan, but God spoke first through the Bible. When the opportunity came and we were apprehensive to take the step, I was reading in the book of Mark, preparing for season three of the podcast, and in chapter one, Jesus comes and begins preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In those verses, the Bible spoke to us about an urgency to share Jesus with people, something the ministry opportunity seemed to present more directly than Aaron's previous job in education. And even the part that said that the time is fulfilled, it was like the Lord said, time's up, it's time for something new. And God also spoke to us through prayer. For some time, Aaron had been stirring to leave education, but as we prayed, we asked the Lord to open clear doors when the time came, to invite her and present her with something that was clearly from him. No professional pole positioning or ladder climbing. So when the opportunity was presented, we knew the answer already because we had been praying about it and waiting upon the Lord for it. God spoke through circumstances as well to us. I wore a certain t-shirt to church one day, and the guy behind me commented on it, and it struck up a conversation. Through talking, it turns out that he was the chairman of the board of the crisis pregnancy that we had helped fundraise for before, though we had never met him. The conversation then led to a dinner, which then led to a tour of the clinic, which then led to us volunteering, which then led to some invitations to some other meetings, which then led to a job offer for Aaron. Each circumstance, another mile marker in God speaking to us. And God speaks and God spoke to us through the church. A variety of gifts and callings in the body. The chairman of the board actually approached us as he felt prompted by the Lord, and even a number of teachings and podcasts emphasizing an urgency for the gospel that we were listening to about the time is now in the state of our world. God speaking through pastors and teachers and church members who had no idea that God was using them to speak to us about our circumstances. Hear ye, hear ye. Hearing the voice of God, God is an art. And when we can press in and learn to hear his voice, how blessed we are and others are too. The chapter ends with the familiar story of Jesus in the storm with his disciples. Lots of application in that event. But if you want to dive more into that, go back and listen to Verbatim Word Season 2, Episodes 53 and 54. They're bonus episodes called Safe and Stuck, in which we went more in depth about how to navigate through the storms of life. But I do want to finish the chapter and podcast today with one point of application we see in the storm about hearing the voice of God. Listen to this. Verses 35 through 41. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? For many of us, a familiar story. But how does this fit into the rest of the chapter about sowers and seeds and lamps and measures and mustard seeds? 
Notice, the disciples heard Jesus tell them to go to the other side, and they did. They were obedient to what they heard, and it was not smooth sailing, but Jesus had told them nonetheless. Hearing God's voice will not always make the most sense to us. It goes against the flow, against the grain, against the culture. It requires us to go in faith, to trust, to follow. Sometimes it even leads us into hard stuff. It causes us to deny ourselves, to say no to sin, to do what is right rather than what feels right or feels good all the time. But these disciples knew Jesus better because they did hear what he said, and they responded. Second, it says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? The wind and the sea heard Jesus' command, and they obeyed him. How amazing is that? He spoke, and creation responded. We see that even in the third verse of the Bible. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that repetition repeats all through the creation story. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit. God said, and creation responded. The atoms, the molecules, the laws of physics and nature and the universe, they responded. It all responded until man did not. Hearing other voices, including their own, above the voice of God. In this storm, the disciples marveled. Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's Jesus. The wind and the waves obey him. And yet we will not oftentimes. Father, forgive us for hearing so many other voices that lead and guide and influence and confuse and for neglecting and becoming unfamiliar with the only voice that we need to hear, your voice. We praise you for being the only true God, superior to the idols of the nations that have mouths but do not speak. Quiet our hearts and minds and lives and draw us to be alone with you that your seed might penetrate our hearts deeply and that we would hear and respond and obey. Help us to be good stewards with the measure you have already given to us, living it out and applying it day by day. And we open up our mouths wider to receive more of your truth, for man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.